Hello, it's Joanna Lumley here. And before we start this podcast, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Actors Benevolent Fund, which is here to support actors and stage managers in times of illness, injury, old age, and financial hardship. This industry can be wonderful, but it can also be challenging. And the ABF is here to help by offering grants in times of need and by providing a sense of community. If you're in the position to help support others in our industry, or if you need support yourself, you can find details of how to contact the ABF, as well as ways of keeping up to date with developments via social media, in the show notes of this episode. Meanwhile, why not become a member, which you can do through the ABF website. Thank you so much. Hello and welcome to the ABF podcast, where each week we invite special guests to talk to us about challenges they faced in the theatre and TV industry, from dealing with performance anxiety to rejection to coping with ageing and questions around our identity. Sat alongside them each week, we have coaches and therapists to help unpack the subject and offer practical advice. My name is Hannah Whittingham and I will be your host. In today's episode, we're talking to Katie Heath and Lisa Marie Hall about neuroinclusivity in the industry. Katie is a rather trained actor and a voice coach who was diagnosed with dyspraxia and probable ADHD in the first term of her master's. This late diagnosis inspired her research into the neurodivergent actor, which she later turned into workshops for the neurodivergent acting community, as well as for higher educational teams on a neuroinclusive pedagogical approach. Lisa Marie Hall worked as a top designer in UK film and TV for 25 years alongside teaching at universities. After reaching burnout, she trained as a workplace sleep ambassador with the UK Sleep Charity and became a trained wellbeing coordinator and mental health first aider with a focus on diversity and inclusion. She now works as a personal development coach and mentor through which she offers support to crew talent of all ages and experiences. So first of all, thank you both very much for coming. Pleasure. Pleasure. <laughs> um, and Kate, I want to start with you. Um, first of all, just talk us through how you got to be doing the work that you're doing now. <laughs> What's my job? Um, <laughs> well, I'm currently <clears throat> a voice and accent teacher, um, but it all started when I uh, went to drama school, aged 18, um, went to RADA, um, graduated 2001, and then I was like jobbing actor for Mm -hmm. 20-ish years and then decided finally I bit the bullet I was thinking about it for a long time for various reasons to do the MA in an MA in voice Um, and so I I went to the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama and then did the two-year MFA in voice studies sure Um, and it was there that I got my late diagnosis right in in dyslexia dyspraxia and ADHD Mm. um and so I then kind of focused my research uh, of my dissertation into the neurodivergent actor Mm -hmm. and a lovely person say to me oh turn this research into workshops so I turn them into workshops and that's sort of what I do alongside Mm. being uh, a voice and accent coach across you know the industry as well as across a lot of schools drama schools yeah yeah but I'm curious just particularly for anyone listening who is thinking they may want to be tested or anything along those lines what difference did it make to you what was your reaction to having that diagnosis um I mean a lot um and I think a lot of a lot of people can kind of also share share my experience there was um grief Mm -hmm. there was a lot of grief um just in in the sense of uh what had been yeah I think and and you know um there's relief of ah and sort of knowing that it's like a a a neurological difference sort of it makes sense of a a lot of of of, made sense of a lot of things Mm. Um, so kind of, but, and then there's the empowerment, especially in an educational environment that I was in yeah. because all of a sudden I was going, all right, I don't learn like that. I mm-hmm. can't learn like that. I've wasted a lot of term, t- t- sort of time learning like that. Mm. 
but I can learn like this. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is much easier. Mm. Um, but I, I, it's sort of, yeah, the kind of the grief thing was was big for me and it's sort of what I spent a lot of time thinking about and trying to get out of my head. Yeah. Um, and actually something that the one-to-one mentoring helped with because of the level of educational shame that comes mm. with it. So I sort of cycled through many stages of the grief and I guess I'm comfortable <laughs> with my chaos <laughs> looking at Lisa there I was going to, I was um, literally just going to bring Lisa in because yeah. I was going to bring you in a little bit later but uh, for those of you listening to this uh, who probably won't know we have <laughs> a married couple in the room even though one keeps trying to deny it um, and Lisa I'm actually wondering what it was like for you supporting Katie through that diagnosis and whether you saw a, a change or a shift in, in her after that diagnosis had happened um, it was it was a it was a a momentous time actually I think um, actually to do with Katie's age um, okay. and I think for both of us as working professionals so I've I've worked behind behind the camera in in film and TV for a long time as a as a self employed creative and um, we've both you know getting into sort of late thirties we've both been through education we have both successfully started careers we feel that you're on a you're on a certain track. Mm. he must be doing something right and then I think it was more the experience of getting this diagnosis and obviously that didn't change anything about Katie yeah but it I think the educational shame part of it was the most impactful Mm. and how I was as the partner to navigate that because you can't sort of stop thinking about your school years and, and what conditioning happened to you and mm. now what I know uh, in the training that I've done as a as a coach on mentoring and, and even having therapy myself to understand the condition that happens to you when you're a child the first seven yep. years of your life is so impactful in terms of what behaviors you'll start manifesting mm. so to think that it's just uh the very sort of biased the cognitively biased world that we live in mm. has compounded Katie's um living experience yeah. um time and time and time again and i think it was navigating emotionally the reflection on how hard it's been up to this point mm. but then also to understand perhaps the level of masking that has gone yeah. on um and how exhausting that has been but actually the, the fear of like how do we take that mask away now you know what it is mm. but how do you navigate finding your own identity again yeah um in a world that is still cognitively biased so it's it was sort of many emotions and i mm. i i personally had to find a level of acceptance of katie's sort of behaviors that aren't aren't just going to get better at time i'm sure she won't mind me saying her, wa- her washing up skills are not great and i like to leave lots of cupboards open. lots of cupboards open there's lots of things and, and i suppose in, in back of your head you just think well this will just improve with time you yeah know? and we've been together 13 years um and for me to go no it's it's just not going to improve and i think the biggest reflection is on why is that a problem for me mm. um and so and, I'm, and i know we'll talk about this later on but it's more the the more of the acceptance of someone's behavior but yes. also the acceptance of why does it bother me yeah and that's more of of okay i need to go look at myself then how did it affect you acting wise oh i mean just so much like and i now know why learning lines was a nightmare mm. Um, and the shame around that yeah. and other actors calling me out that I hadn't learned my lines, uh, directors calling me out that I hadn't learned them, yeah. um, other actors and directors in the company frustrated because I couldn't, um, I couldn't remember blocking. I, I, mm. would, I was just lost on stage, not understanding stage left, stage right. I mean, come on. Downstage, upstage, I'm going up. No, that's down. I mean, just yeah. that kind of stuff or, or finding choreography. And when I mean choreography, I mean sort of like dance choreography, but also just choreography of like, I just need to walk in, take my hat, my coat, my scarf off, put the paper down. All of that was just, I would need to run it and run it and run it. Um, And the frustration from other people when I hadn't got it Mm. and the amount of just, I mean, there's endless. I think also just my self-care wasn't great. Right. Um, because of the impulsivity of, I'm just going to go out with everyone and get drunk and have fun. And the lack of focus. I mean, yeah. 
you have to have, nobody talks about this, but outside of the rehearsal room or the job, Mm. you have to have probably more focus and drive. Yeah. And if I wasn't working, then I was all over the shop, frantically trying to audition, um, getting lost. That's fun. Mm. So, I mean, we're going back a long time here, but it was before we had smartphones and like Google Maps or, you know, any, any, it was like the little paper A to Z that you would have and trying to find these, I mean, they're still obscure now, trying to find any of those casting Casting rooms. rooms, Yeah, around the back of, yeah. And so I'd be, you know, it'd be like trying to just find that. I would be, it would be the sublime to the ridiculous where I'm like, I'm not going to find that. And I'd be there an hour and a half early. Yeah. Or I'd literally be 20 minutes late because I'm still yeah. walking around or I'm still actually, I have to, I didn't make it onto the right train. That kind of leads on to the next question as well, mm. which is, and you've talked about it quite a bit already, but why is it so useful to be diagnosed? Um, I would say to, to find that arsenal of tools yeah. to help. We're navigating a world that I think is complex for everyone, really. Mm. But um, I-, I would say as an actor, because you are having to spin plates relentlessly yeah. um, to avoid burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to understand your mental health yeah, as well. Um and I think to advocate for yourself, mm. um, just to, it sort of feels like if I can describe my neurodivergence, I was trying to figure out like a way of describing it. It's sort of, you know, that static that you hear like mm. sometimes and it's just consistent. Yeah. When my neurodivergence is worse, it's like the static is on really loud. Right. Consistently. Mm-hmm. And, and it, all the time. All the time it's on. So when you're trying to do a task or people are talking to you or you're trying to do that at the same time or what, it's like it's competing with that. Mm. And so now I have the arsenal of tools that I have and I know, sadly, it's where I know that I'm going to trip up. Right. What I put into place is so that I don't trip up, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. Um and so that I don't have to keep apologising or making excuses. So I put yeah. the things into place because I know already what I'm going to need before I burn out or any of those things. Yes. So that's why it's helpful Yeah. Um, to, to know it's empowering. I think mm-hmm. it's amazing to suddenly understand how you learn mm-hmm. something. Yeah. I, I really do. And I think, and I would advocate that for anyone. And that yeah. is, that is a huge part of my pedagogy and how I teach is I am going to teach you how to learn what you're learning and why you're learning it. Yeah. Um, because otherwise you just don't have that when you leave to do anything, if mm. even if it's acting or not. Um, I think because it's great to know so that you can find your community. Yeah. That you, you, you walk into the arts, they're everywhere. Yeah. Probably without even sort of realising it. Um, if you were to get a formal diagnosis, mm-hmm. um, you will then be able to access medication should you want to go down that route now that's only a recent thing for me Mm -hmm. um and i've been medicated since the end of 2021 so it's and it was a process yeah um finding the right medication the right dosage and then the right sort of aftercare with that diagnosis yeah and the meds and then whatever counseling or therapy you have alongside it yeah and I remember suddenly realising that the static that I was talking about mm. was quieter. Mm. Like, and I was like, oh, is this what it's like for people? It wasn't a lot of people talk about how ADHD medication, it's like, it's overnight and your life changed. That was not what it was like for me. Right. And there's a lot of hype around that. Mm. Um, it was, it's, it's a process, it's still an ongoing process. Yeah. Um, I think that's really important for people to yeah, know. I think well. it is yeah. as well because it's not like, because we'll talk about this in a minute about how to get diagnosed, but mm. I think a lot of people th- go on this very long journey to get even to that place of diagnosis and then expect that suddenly the clouds are going to clear and it doesn't. Yeah. And neither does medication make it go away. It doesn't. Yeah. It's part of your management treatment Yeah, as well. But you mentioned it a moment ago. How? How do you get diagnosed? Oh. What? <laughs> 
<laughs> What's the process? Um, if you are going back to any higher education or even if you are in education, mm-hmm. find out through them because yeah. I would say having looked at all of the different ways to do it, yeah, that seems the most straightforward. Or just go to Central. <laughs> I mean, it was just like... <laughs> So it's all, it's very dependent on what neurodivergency you think you might have. Yeah, sure. And that's really tough mm. because there's a lot of of, of co- crossover. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I I just I knew there was something going on. I didn't know what mm. really. So with this, I mean, I will uh, dyslexia. And the only way you can get an assessment for dyslexia is to be form and to is to be formally identified is a diagnostic assessment. Right. So dy- dyslexia is not a medical condition. This is where all the politics come in, really. Right. Right. So, right. and a diagnostic assessment is not covered by the NHS. Right. So there's no direct funding for diagnostic assessments in schools, colleges, or anywhere else, mm. and they have to be paid for usually by the individual person your parent if you're a child or employer um but there is funding there is funding so it is all of this is really really hard yeah Yeah. like you're probably you're going to ask me why are people undiagnosed because of it's so hard and it's so expensive yeah Yeah. um so the um the british dyslexia association association just go there yeah i'll give you everything and they they offer bursaries as well um, and then there's two types. There's the individual one, which is obviously self-funded, or there's the corporate assessment service. Mm-hmm. So if you, you've got a job, mm. then you can go through your work. Yeah. Dyspraxia, here yeah. we go with just because the definition of dyspraxia is constantly evolving. You'd be educational psychologist yeah. or an occupational therapy assessment. Oh, interesting. Which is around £800 upwards. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. GP... Yeah. So adults can be funded by GP through finance yeah. from um, clinical commissioning groups. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, go to Dyspraxia UK. Right. And they okay. will help you with that. So universities will, will can fu- help fund charities or you self-fund. Yeah. But Dyspraxia UK cover all of that. Yeah. Now, ADHD is different. So you have your NHS assessment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you go through your GP, explain why you think you are, you've got it. And then afterwards they do a screening tool and you might you will be on that list for years right okay um and then your gp refers you for the assessment and they put you on the, on the waiting list and it's yeah. up to a friend of mine is like three four years in right wow but i've also just discovered this nhs assessment via right to choose mm. um read up on it on there's on the ADHD aware or diagnosis pathways yeah um both websites it's brilliant and it and it basically goes you in England mm-hmm. under the NHS you now have a legal right to choose your mental health care provider oh. and your choice of mental health care team yeah so that's one way if you want to avoid wait really long waiting lists yeah you go privately which is sure. what I did yeah um, because I thought that was the only option to get something but even even they have waiting lists right and i waited yeah. a couple of months for mine and that was with okay. the sloan court clinic right who were amazing great and we'll put all of these in our show notes yeah, as well absolutely so it'll be there but it, it's them. it's hard it's long yeah it's expensive can be expensive yeah yeah so just before we bring lisa in a little bit more mm. um i'm just thinking of people listening to this who maybe have like you had a sort of feeling yeah. that maybe something might be different about them. What are the most sort of common ways that that neurodiversities would present to people? There are so many, mm. and uh, I, I think I can only go from experience. Sure, really, and you could probably bring Lisa in on this as well because <laughs> she could probably be far more direct than I am. Um, my short term memory, right? Okay, I- I'll give you an example. Like you would in introduce me to some people in a room I will not remember those names mm. uh, re- repeatedly right brilliant as an actor when it's yeah. really important to <laughs> know names remember people's names yeah or as a teacher where I of teach up to upwards of uh, sometimes when I was you know a hundred students a week like yeah nah, absolutely not yeah um instructions are given to me no absolutely not so if right. I would ask somebody 
if I was lost where I'm mm. going and they'd start feeding me and I'm like, nope. So yeah. I would need them to kind of like, you need to draw something or you yeah. need to be something visual. Yeah. Um, I mean, the list goes on really. Uh, automaticity. I'll give you an example of what automaticity is. If you were to write down to me how you got here this morning. Yeah. And you'd, I take it, are you right-handed or left-handed? I'm right-handed. So you'd write with your right hand. Yeah. If I then ask you to write it with your left hand, uh-huh. that's what writing is like for me. Oh. And that sort of interruption of of trying to process what's in my brain to get the information down on paper. Right. Really fun in an educational environment. Yeah. When I'm, all I'm doing is writing essays. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, that's really hard for me. Mm. Um, knowing my left and my right, uh, this proprioception. Yeah. Knowing where your body is in space. Yeah. You know, so I love walking into things. Great. Really good fun. <laughs> Just knowing that sort of spatial awareness of yeah you know if I go to hug somebody and kiss them at, at the same time it's just you know I'm like <laughs> I'm literally it's just chaos I have no literally no concept of time okay Lisa will go we're going in five minutes time blindness time blindness no I mean quite it, it is, is it is extraordinary so wow. it's like the sublime to the ridiculous like I said you know yeah. but like uh, I I I so I won't be able to focus. Like ha- focus is hilarious, but then if I focus on something like I love accents, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go and um, go and study this accent and break it down. I will keep going for four hours without going to the loo. Wow! And Lisa would have to put water in front of me. Oh wow! So it's that. It's called hyperfocus. Yeah. So yeah. if you want something done, like I'll get it done. Yeah. And yeah. then, or sometimes, if it's the most inane time, I won't get it done. Mm. But, but the simple act of getting ready in the morning, getting up and realising how much time you've got before Absolutely no you've got concept. to be somewhere right. or leave the house, you cannot chunk your time nope. and know which tasks to do in which order oh, in order to yeah. ha- have done everything by the time you have to leave the house. So it's called executive functioning, really. And bit is, I think other people will be talking about how to prioritise yeah, no. it, that doesn't work. Doesn't that, work. That I've learned that doesn't that doesn't work. Okay. It was really understanding your relationship with time, and if anything, that's come more to the fore this year. I think, um, mm. particularly when you're self-employed and maybe you may be juggling lots of small jobs. Yeah, and yeah. that time management, um, which then, if you don't, if you aren't able to do personal time management, yeah. leads to burnout. leads to regular burnout. And yeah. I think regular burnout seems to be quite a, a yeah. common. A sign for those that might be suspecting that they are neurodivergent, not because they're going through an extreme crisis in their life, but it seems to just be continual of not being able to get on top of yeah. things. What's your perception of it in terms of how the industry is set up to support neurodiverse people? Is it, is the first question. No, it's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, uh, so my experience is in specifically in film and TV, probably yeah. high-end TV for the last and you were a designer. I was a production designer. Yep, yeah, uh, working in in uh, film and TV in this country, predominantly the big TV shows, you know, for Amazon and uh, Marvel and 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 those where it is fast and furious. Mm. Um, and I've watched it change. You know, I've been in the industry for twenty five years. I've watched it develop, and because I was in the art department and running the art department and dealing with props and construction and. And essentially, I suppose the the best connection to stage management, if we're if we're sure. thinking theatre here, yeah, um, is the vast number of of neurodiverse people um, yeah. drawn to uh, expressing themselves through other methods other than simply sort of academic, perhaps writing or other tasks. Sure. Um, so high level of neurodiversity, zero training around neuro inclusion. I think mm. for anything in those kind of creative workplaces, predominantly, I think, all stemming from our freelance structure of the creative industries. And because there is no, um, there's no sort of impetus, I think, for the for the employer, uh, whether that is a theatre organisation, a, a TV channel, a stu- you know, a studio, to want to invest in its employees, you know, because that's going to take time and mm. patience and acceptance so you literally just 
can you do the gig? Come and do it. A few months later, you're off. What's there's no there's no investment in seeing how people operate and learn. Yeah. So we are in a culture where if you can do the job, you'll get it. If you can't cope with it, that's your own problem, and you'll yeah. deal with that in time. So yeah. there's no no one no one is looking after your long term career except mm. you. Yeah. And so I think because of that, the the industry doesn't feel the need to perhaps yeah. look at a duty of care when it comes to to to, to diversity and inclusion full stop. Yeah. Um but neuro inclusion. Um my biggest issue, and I think I've I've watched the TV industry change in this country since since America landed pretty much, um mm. is our is time. And right. the biggest thing that affects my wife and and other neurodivergent clients that I have is is the speed of which we are expected to work. The yeah. um, so I was that you coach people. Now. I co- I coach one to one creatives, um, yeah. uh, supporting them through their through what they need ultimately, but also yeah. looking at their creative careers. Um, I'm a needs based coach, so I start right. with you know not not goal orientated, very sure. much like what are our needs, and I think it's quite hard for people to actually identify them and, and the work mm. that I do seems to lend itself really well to the neurodivergent population. Yeah. Um, but I think the industry is, uh, you have to become so self-reliant to be able to cope with the speed of it. Yes. Um, I think we are all expected to be on 24 hours. Um, so I think that level of constantly being um, stimulated, like, feeling like you need to be answering emails late at night, feeling like, for example, for actors, getting self-tapes in super fast yeah. at the last minute, um, being given um, writer's rooms, creating uh, endless drafts of sides coming out super last minute, even as a designer, constantly getting new um, schedules in mm. at the last minute, constant waves of information needing to be assimilated and processed. And that is testing for anyone um, but the speed has just got faster and our prep times because of budgets have got tighter. Mm. And so I think, and, and actors are coming in later, um, directors are coming in later. It's all very, it's all very lastminute.com. That is not the right nurturing environment for someone with a neurodivergence. Mm. To me, time and cognitive bias, which I've mentioned before, but time is the one thing that our industry um, is has a, has a problem with. And that affects us all Um whether you're neurodivergent or not, mm. but it is particularly biased, I think. Yeah. Um, and there is very little done because everyone just goes, that's the way it is. You're yeah. meant to be tired. Don't worry, it'll be over soon. And so you literally go from one job to another, yeah. never really addressing how you learn, what your needs might be, um, how to self-advocate and, and all of that things. And I think mm. both the work that Katie and I are doing are trying to remedy that in some, in little corner of it that, that we occupy. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting coming from two different perspectives of somebody who does have a neurodivergent diagnosis and somebody who doesn't as well. And the way that you, I mean, you both see everything very similarly from, from the outside, but it's interesting coming from those two different places. Yeah. Um, so neurotypical, you might hear a lot um, as a word. And it's been an interesting journey discovering Katie's um, diagnosis and really understanding, you know, just how big an umbrella term dyspraxia is, for example, and how many things that contains and how many different types of ADHD they suspect might be out there. And they are discovering mm. n- more ways of understanding the neuroscience. So it will keep expanding. But there's this idea of neurodivergence and neurotypical. And I think to create a different environment, I think we need to firstly tackle this word. So neurotypical, um, we can define neurodivergence, can even define it in terms of how our brainwaves operate and why they (laughs) might be different. But if I asked you what is neurotypical, Mm. I generally don't know how to answer that question. What is neurotypical? Is it just not being neurodivergent? But then if one in seven people in this in this in the UK are neuro potentially neurodivergent, then that's when you realise how much of this is a spectrum. And that's when you realise um that it shouldn't simply be a line. There's a clear line. You're either neurodivergent or Mm. you're neurotypical. But the world does work in that way, in that cognitive bias way. And I think it would be important for environments to realise um that perhaps there's no such thing as neurotypical. Yes. And so the aim is to look at neuroinclusion. So yeah. everything that we do in the way that we operate is good for everybody. Yeah. And I think one of the yeah. biggest things that I've done in as a, as a coach and, and workshops is using the VARC 
tool. And if you've ever heard of VARC, no. V-A-R-K. VARC stands for uh, Visual, Aural, Read and Write, and Kinesthetic. Right. It's a bit of a blunt tool, if I'm honest, mm -hmm. but I've used it a lot to make people very aware that we all learn differently. And it's, yeah. <clears throat> it's a test to see, um, not that I like identi identity profiling, stuff like Myers-Briggs, but it's a similar tool where you answer questions online and it will give you a dominant uh, learning, learning preference. Yeah. So it's how you choose to, how, how your brain naturally feels it, it chooses to mm -hmm. <clears throat> learn. And in doing that, you also then understand how you choose to receive information and potentially leads to your kind of best communication method. Yeah. And when I've done this with workshops, people are, People all have a different answer and you mm. all have a different combination of, of, your, of your skills. And you then realise that if you're working in a company or you're working in a, a cast or a, or a team or a or film production, that you realise that everyone around you is going to have an entirely different way of uh, receiving and giving information. Basically, mm. we all have different learning styles for lots of neurological and pathological reasons why we've ended up that way. So how can one mode ever be truly yeah. uh, representative of us all? Yeah. And I think a lot of us get into that habit, go, well, I learn this way. Mm. So therefore that's how it's going to, that's just going to how it be. So it's maybe accommodating that, firstly, that awareness in yourself, mm. then aware that everyone might do it differently. Mm. And I'll tell you in an art department, please don't ever assume that everybody thinks visually because you know, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> they don't. Exactly, and dancers exactly don't necessarily gonna, think yeah. kinesthetically and uh, singers don't necessarily think aurally. Yeah. They may be, that may be one aspect of their of the way that they behave and the way that they process and function, but that might not necessarily be their dominant style of, yeah. of learning and communicating. And I think we, we come biased. We assume that. Yeah. Um, and so it's learning to unpick those biases based yeah. on the fact that we learn differently. And in doing so opens up greater dignity and space and respect for yeah. the neurodivergent person who will just be learning and navigating and processing in an equally different way yeah. and it should be seen as a spectrum not this line and i'm going to come back to that in a little bit because i think that's a really important thing to just dig into a little bit more about just highlighting the ways in which a deliberately neuroinclusive inclusive environment really does help loads more people than you might initially think mm. it might but i just want to just focus a little bit on a few more practical things and this question to both of you, really, maybe let's come back to, first of all, Katie, there are various things, particularly in an actor's life, which are just always going to happen. You're going to have auditions. You're going to have a, a rehearsal process. There's going to be a, a tech run if you're doing a stage show. Are there some really practical things? And I want to stress again, as we've all said, it shouldn't be completely the responsibility of the neurodiverse person to have to make all of the adjustments themselves. There has to be accommodation, as we've just been talking about. But just for somebody who maybe is diagnosed, who does know that they have a, a, a particular, uh, they're finding things really hard in these contexts. Are there some really simple things that people can do to make it a little bit easier for themselves? Yeah, there, there really are. As the actor, when we're up there rehearsing, mm. um, blocking is changing all the time. Yeah. all of these things, who is the person writing down all that blocking? Mm. The, you know, the, the um, DSM on DSM, book. yeah, yeah. It would be amazing if whatever the DSM has written down is then somehow like photocopied or put yeah, or uploaded. Yeah, yeah. Or that they can go through that. And that is something that I think an actor does need to take ownership of. Mm -hmm. But I think it can also be for everyone, yeah. not just the actor who's a little bit, you know, ADHD yeah. and just, you know, in the room and hasn't taken it in or, you know, yeah. can't write things down. Like, this is the blocking for today. Yeah. Have you got it? Yeah. Um, obviously, this is going to be difficult when you're doing something like new writing. Mm. Okay. And I have been in rooms as an actor and as a, as a voice coach when it's new writing and that is hard. Yeah. So therefore that needs to like, you need to up your game when it comes mm. to that. Film stuff, like film a scene with blocking, film like um, choreography, yeah. send it out. So yeah. I've noticed that start happening, but that's usually me going, I'm filming it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm there filming it. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I've asked the actor who's struggling, I went, if you were to watch this back, where would you want a camera? And they go, actually, from this angle. Yeah, yeah. If you film it from like it's a mirror. Like, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. They need actually, could you come behind, behind and, and just like walk out like a POV? <laughs> like, yeah. 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 So I think knowing that, that's why it's useful to know how you learn. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's called metacognition. It's learning how yeah. you learn. Yeah. Um, and, but, you know, and I see kind of access riders being put out to, to them and actually not really happening. Yes. Could you maybe so, just explain what an access rider is? Okay, for well, in education, it's called a learning agreement. So yeah. that you will come in and like, if you've already previously got a diagnosis, then you're able to put on a learning agreement what your needs are in the room and actually yeah. what the law is. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um, because any neurodivergent is part of the Disability Act. Right. So That's there is a law that you have to meet those educational needs. Mm. And that is in an educational environment. So yeah. it is the law. When it comes to an access rider, um, you as the actor uh, will need to initiate it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a way of, uh, depending on, what your disability is and yeah. what your access needs are it will it will differ mm -hmm. um so if i if i was to do one now as an actor i would ask for all of those things that yeah. i've just talked about i yeah. need this i need this and i need this i need the script this i will need to have um the blocking going through at the end of the day and i'll take pictures of it I'd like this to be filmed, you know, yeah. any of those things. I need deadlines of when lines to be learnt. Yeah. Um, I, um, when it comes to receiving notes from the director, mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to be able to record those yeah. so that I can, and you won't see me necessarily writing them down, yeah. but I will be recording them. And then I may come back the next day to ask if we can go through them. Yeah. Or actually literally shift that in the space yeah because yeah. quite often these notes are given and then they're never rehearsed in and you're expected to yes. somehow pull it out the bag and go was this the note yeah so it would be those kind of things yeah to challenge this idea of access riders which i fully fully endorse is you can have an access rider and still no one knows what the hell to do about mm. about it so that is to do with the infrastructure and the support of all the people around it that actually go well i don't know how to change the way this company works or yes this, i don't i don't know what to do <laughs> so it can end up being as useful as it is as just a piece of paper i had a interesting uh, chat with a head of diversity and inclusion at sky studios hmm. um and they had in their email signature a little hyperlink to a guide to working with their name um and so i clicked on it and it hmm. was a it was a google doc and it was a fantastic um one page a4 um, sort of intro to who they were as a person. They are neurodivergent um, and queer. And they were talking about just the ways that they operate. So how their tone might come across in mm. emails, for example, and how they, uh, how certain things they won't discuss. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of like setting boundaries, but also letting the person know that they might not get back to them straight away or that they, I remember this, they don't like to meet in person right. um, because um, they have social anxiety. Yeah. So they were yeah, very yeah. willing to put across their needs. That's but in a But in, in every email. So I yeah. had only met this person online once. Yeah. But I was, before I met them, I did read that document and it was like, here's the etiquette of how we're going yeah. to communicate. And it built connection. Yeah. It didn't it didn't freak me out. It didn't make me go, Oh, this person's got these issues. It just meant, oh, I connect with them more. Yeah. And, and we can get we can just um I suppose just sort of get get on with the, the meat of the conversation. Yeah. And I've been looking further into this. There's a there's a company called Leapers, which is a, a, a organization that supports freelancers. And they have created something quite similar called Manual of Me. Mm -hmm. and where they sort of in encourage you to create a document where it, it explores not just neurodivergence, it explores how you work. So the access riders is one formal way of doing it, and I yeah. think that's important. But I think there's other ways that you could we could all do, mm. all of us, as commonplace, like this is how to work with me, yeah. and this is what I, what I need from you, and this is what you should expect from, from me. What I'm particularly interested in in this, and we're getting into the real nitty-gritty of this as we come into sort of the last few questions is this idea this perception that is still there that certain actors particularly are difficult in inverted commas and how we get 
through this thing of, on the one hand, there being, at least people are saying there is, uh, an increase in attention being paid to diversity of all kinds when casting and when, you know, crewing up as well. Um, and yet there is still uh, an issue where actors are worried that they're going to be considered difficult. Difficult. Yes. Just yeah. means different. Yeah. And... Um, most people don't know the difference between those words. Yes. Um, and I deal with a lot with this. And I th I'm, I'm going to, if it's all right, I'm going to sort of share, offer my my take on that. Yeah, do From you. actually the, 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 the people <laughs> saying the word difficult. So it could be casting directors, it could be agents, it could be yeah. um, directors and producers. Um, it could be anybody, I suppose, but in a position of power. Um if you find somebody who is neurodivergent difficult, mm -hmm. um, firstly you just look at yourself. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and I'd be asking yep. what what is it? Um, if you if you generally care, and if you're listening to this podcast, um, you might be halfway there for caring. So mm. um, uh, that's a good start. So if you're willing to go one step further, is to build that awareness of when you feel that somebody has is making you feel like this is tricky this is this person is making my life difficult mm -hmm. um whether you know it's a neurodivergent issue or not is to firstly ask yourself what is what is this difficulty you're feeling is it because someone is um is are you feeling the situation is is not in control in the way that you would like are you feeling that we're not staying on time in the way that you would like is this person disrupting things for you is that yeah. what you're is that what you're dealing with and to firstly ask what your needs are so it comes back to a needs-based coaching approach but your response to somebody who presents cognitively quite different to you mm -hmm. um is obviously disrupting something for you yeah hence why you call call them difficult yeah and either that's because you don't have a skill set to deal perhaps with conflict maybe that is triggering for yourself maybe you are uh, without the tools to be able to navigate your situation being changed because of certain people so for example the rehearsal room is not is not going in the way that you want it because yeah. there might be difficult air quotes difficult people in the room um that's more to do with why did you why did you have such fixed expectations about how the rehearsal room was going to be run in the first place mm. did you think of building enough flexibility and adaptability yeah into it could you could you manage this in a different way rather than then isolating an individual yeah. or calling out an individual? And that's the same with casting. And I have, I, even as a designer, I've heard those chats mm. um, about directors and producers chatting about the lead cast and, and who they want and who they don't. And people get written off so quickly, yeah. but, um, but it's to do more with their demand for either not just having an easy life, but for someone else to not be tested by difference yeah and so i think that is a braver conversation we all need to have if you mm. are if you if you find someone who may be um you know autistic spectrum disorder in is behaving in a way that you cannot understand in yeah. that moment um rather than see them as the problem see mm. is this environment um working for you and them yeah. and maybe it's not and maybe that's time for for a shift in in how you're approaching it rather than being scared of humans and their yeah. their emotional needs and their and their behaviors so that's mm. that's my take on that yeah on the whole word difficult um yeah and and a lot of it is a self-awareness so i guess kind of coming to the final question what do we do? <laughs> how do we, how do we, I mean, I wanted to dig into this a little bit more, but um, I'm just going to sort of very briefly just to go back to the idea that a neuroinclusive environment is so beneficial for so many people. We've had a, a an episode in this series said on aging, people who, you know, are getting older, their memory isn't so great. They're also going to be benefited by a neuroinclusive environment. People going through the menopause, we've had people on various episodes talking about menopause and all of the changes that brings about. That's also really helped mm -hmm. by this sort mm -hmm. of environment. Um, and do add others if, if I've missed them. But um, what, do, what do we do? How do we get things to change, do you think? I think it's training. Um, and hire people to mm. train your teams. Like there's plenty, yeah. it's not just me, not just Lisa. Now, what I also, the, the people that kind of drop me emails and going, hi, can you come in and train our 
staff, they're still they're still framing it as can you come and train our staff about neurodivergency? Mm-hmm. So that needs to stop. Right. Okay. That genuinely this thing of like we are still marginalizing. Yeah. And we are still othering. Like yeah. we are still kind of existing in that sort of that framework of, well, there's this lot who aren't. Yeah. But there's this lot who are. Yeah. Yeah. And that we need to, you know, we need to somehow learn about how to kind of, and that there would be some neurodivergence listening to this going, well, hang on a minute. I, I am this and I do want that and blah, blah, blah. That's fine. But I think Lisa said it, neuro-inclusive environments are for all. Yeah. They will benefit all. Yeah. And by, by having a neuro-inclusive environment, you are going to tap in to the most extraordinary workforce. Yeah. Yeah. And at the moment, people aren't. And it just keeps going on this sort of vicious cycle. Yeah. For me, it's awareness, like loads of awareness, uh, this stigma that is attached to it. This is yeah. why there are so many people undiagnosed. Mm. Spotlight now of, of on their sort of like about me section are going, well, do you want to put that you're neurodivergent? And a lot okay. of actors don't. Yeah. Because they're going, well... What that's then going to mean yeah. is that they don't want to take on somebody who's going to be difficult. Yeah, yeah. Right? Mm. So I understand why Spotlight have done that. But it's like, well, how about Spotlight trains the people that that, that are hiring these actors so mm. an actor doesn't need to say that they are? Yeah, yeah. So it it all comes down to awareness and training and support as well yeah. and not kind of cancelling people because they don't know about neurodivergency, but yeah. like putting something in place yeah. to train. You've got yeah. to start training. You've you, it, it all goes on. It all happens there. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the saddest things that came out of my Spotlight workshop, my very first one, was most of those actors in that room felt that there wasn't a place for them in the industry. Yeah. Like they literally yeah. went, there isn't a place for me. I can't do it. Yeah. I see drama school students dropping out of their training because mm. of burnout. Yeah. I see people literally leaving the industry because they cannot manage it. They just can't do it. Yeah. So not only do they not feel like there's a place in it, but they can't actually survive it. So they've gone and done all this work on training to be the thing that they thought they could do because they couldn't do anything else at school. Mm. So they leave school going, it's going to be fine. I'm going to go into this. Yeah. They go they go do it all and then they get out there going, well, I can't do this either. So what am I going yeah. to do? Yeah. So it it's it has to come down to being inclusive. I think the most dire part is that sources are estimating Mm -hmm. that it's about 15% of the population are neurodivergent. Right. And 50% of those are unaware. Yeah. Yeah. And just think that they have some serious mental health issues. Yeah. Or that they're, they're lost or failing at life. Yeah. You've got to educate leaders. Leaders are really important. Yeah. Who are the big leaders? Yeah. Your teams about the neurodiversity benefits that will will benefit all, making everything inclusive, accessible. And by educating the people that may not be whatever, but may not be neurodiverse or neurospicy, as I like to call it, (laughs) means that they they then will be an ally. Yeah. So if that person can't advocate, I've had Lisa jumping in, just going, well, hang on a minute, when I'm just like, oh, leave it. It doesn't matter. Like, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. No, 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 no. So yeah. be an ally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know? yeah. And coming over to the ally in the room. Lisa, do you have any final sort of thoughts on on that? Well, look, I, as a lot of my work as a coach centres around communication because if we can't communicate, we can't connect. And, and it, to make great work, we all need to connect. Yeah. And I do subscribe to nonviolent communication, which is a... Um, uh, a method actually sort of rooted in psychology that that came from America and a, um, a psychologist called Marshall Rosenberg. And I do subscribe to that. I tra- I'm trained in that. And at the root of that is, is the, is the literacy that we have around how we connect with others, how we 
uh, if you if you know about nonviolent communication, how you understand your own needs, your feelings, um, and then how you request that of others. But on a on a really kind of pra- pragmatic level, um, if so much of what we do in film and theatre is based on the written words, us all say in film, you know, it all starts with a script, and and same with theatre. You know, it is those texts that text. Now, mm. if that text is written in a font that actually is immediately um, uh, making it difficult for some people. I don't know why film and TV still uses courier typewriter. <laughs> you draw yeah. whatever it's called um, as the font. It's a really hard font it's to so read, weird, but yeah. um, but also um, why uh, we have one line schedules. If if you if you're used to, to film and TV, you have one liners. Uh, the call sheets they like to pack as much information on as a call sheet as possible. Yeah. Even I've worked with trainees entering the industry. Um, who have never seen this kind of paperwork before, they're completely flummoxed by it. One-line schedules are horrendous to read, mm. particularly when they put the sort of the dates and the times at the bottom of sections or on the top. So yeah. there's a lot about this, this paper, paperwork that we have become, it's become so commonplace that we use. No one's actually ever challenged. Yeah. Is it actually accessible? You know, can we make it all easy read for everybody? Because I can mm. tell you if someone did an easy read course sheet, it would be a lot better for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to absorb information and... I think if we really understand that this is all about the way that we want to connect with each other, then there is a this is a communication issue ultimately. Yeah. So let's look at some of the methods of communication. One of it is how we speak to each other. Yeah. Which I think we've covered today, how you speak to yourself, how yeah. you speak to others. But let's also think about all the very practical ways that we share written information and how that might impact everybody differently. Yeah. Um, let's campaign for maybe changing a lot of the industry documents that we that we need to apparently assimilate and absorb all the time mm. into easy read formats um, and how to navigate that. Not let's yeah. just say, well, we've always done it this way and this is what everybody expects. You've just made an assumption that everyone's okay with it all the yeah. time um and the speed at which we're working it d- doesn't take much to miss some key bits of information yeah. turning up at the unit base rather than the location or yeah. turn you know or just getting confused with the number of sides you've got in different colored bits of paper yeah. this colored colored paper is very useful for some with dyslexia it doesn't help when you're constantly given um new revisions and and, and you have a rainbow script and yeah. it, it's it's trying to keep up with it was blue yesterday, now it's pink, and now yeah. it's green, and now it's beige, and now we've gone back to gold, and now it's double white, and now yeah. it's double blue. It's, yeah. You know, that speed at which we're trying to share written information, it does seem it does seem very uh, non-neuro-inclusive. I think yeah. that is a practical element that I think yeah. we should all advocate for and yeah. look and um, have many voices in that discussion of how better it could be. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I think this has been a very comprehensive. And do you know what? We still could have gone on for about another five yeah. hours. Uh, but thank you, Katie and Lisa. Thank you so much for all of your time. Thank you. For, your thank thoughts. you. Thanks for listening to us. Thank for you. The wives, listening to the wives, <laughs> as we're known. <laughs> that's I love it. it. Thank you for listening to the ABF podcast. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, you can find helpful links in the show notes. If you would like to become a member of the ABF, support us or require support, You can find everything you need on our website, details of which are also in the show notes. Until next time, goodbye.